0: Well, I want to pick up on really just one idea that has come through in both of our readings that were given so excellently just now, and pick up on the theme that both Isaiah, who was writing many hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, and John, who was writing as an eyewitness of Jesus, an idea they both uh, draw to our attention, which is the idea of Jesus Christ as light. I want to talk to you about Jesus as light. Darkness is an enemy, a primal enemy and foe and fear and uh, something that we all understand immediately. It may have been the first fear that you ever experienced as a child. I've seen all my children go through moments where they have uh, come crying to us because of the dark. And of course, therefore, the idea of darkness is a deeply evocative one. Let me just give you a few snapshots, pictures to just fill that out for us as a kind of backdrop to what I want to say. Back in 2010, there was an incident that struck us all with horror on the news. As news reports uh, landed that 33 men had been trapped underground in a mining accident in Chile. And they were uh, 700 meters below the surface of the ground, five kilometers from the entrance of the mine. And they had to live under there for 69 days. The good news was that all of them were rescued and survived. But I think the minute you think about being underground, in the darkness, the first instinctive emotional response is the reaction of fear, isn't it? Darkness and fear seem to be just to go together. Back in 1977, in New York City, there had been a season of economic downturn and there was a disgruntlement among the population. And then an event struck the city when for more than a day, 25 hours, I believe it was, there was a blackout. The electricity was cut to the city. The shops were dark, the houses were dark, the streets were dark. And because of the general tenor of unhappiness among the population, what began to arise was um, an unsettledness that gave birth to full-blown looting, and arson as buildings were set on fire and the entire population became massively affected over that 24 hours. And it showed you how the human evil is often just below the surface and all that it takes is darkness for that to kind of be unleashed. And we've known something of this even in our recent past in our nation, how that can happen. And so fear, evil, both of these things are associated with darkness. One more snapshot, in 1969, All of us have seen the footage of the Apollo 11 moon landings that took place when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin um, successfully landed their lunar module on the moon to a massive live TV audience globally. But what is less known is that there was a third man in that mission, in that voyage, a man called Michael Collins. And Mike Collins was the astronaut charged with flying the Columbia and it was orbiting the moon as the two astronauts who made the landing themselves were on the surface of the moon. And Mike Collins had to endure a certain period of time in which he was totally out of range of human contact with any other human being, totally out of visual contact also. He was literally on the dark side of the moon. And this is what NASA said about that moment. They said, at the time, they said, not since Adam has any human known such solitude as Mike Collins is experiencing during this 47 minutes of each lunar revolution, when he's behind the moon with no one to talk to except his tape recorder aboard Columbia. Fear, evil, isolation, and loneliness, all of these things we instantly associate with darkness and pure darkness and all that darkness can bring. And I think this helps us Immediately, to set in context what the Bible means, gives us a hint at least, leads us in the direction, what Scripture means when Jesus Christ and his coming is described as light and how he, he, he is called the light of the world. And we saw it particularly in a couple of verses here. In Isaiah 9, that predictive prophecy written 700 or more years before the coming of Jesus, it said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then John, who was a close friend and disciple of Jesus, said this in reflecting on the arrival of Jesus. He said, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus, in summary, at the outset, I want to say, is the antithesis of everything that darkness means to us. And it has to be said, however, that the only way we can associate or, or understand any meaning with the arrival of Jesus is if you and I agree that there is darkness in, in this world. If we are of one heart and mind on that as a fact, and I think it's possible, even though that is the Bible's diagnosis and kind of description of human reality and our experience of living here on earth that there is such an abundance of darkness. It is also possible to have lived your life without really giving that much consideration so that you don't yearn for the light. There is a um, a shark, a not very well-known species of shark, called the Greenland shark that dwells down in the depths in the North Atlantic Sea and is rarely ever seen. And this shark, unfortunately, when it's young, typically, in most cases, is infected with a parasite that bores its way into both of the shark's eyes, and rendering this creature almost entirely blind. And this parasite seems to exist for the sole reason of making this one species of shark blind. And then you think, what you won't probably haven't heard about this particular shark, if you've even heard of it at all, is this species can live for somewhere between 250 and 500 years. And when I first heard that, I was utterly astounded and taken aback. The idea of living in the cold, dark depths of the ocean for 500 years without being able to see a thing just fills your heart with horror, doesn't it? And yet... I think if you were somehow to have a conversation with the shark, I'm not sure the shark would know what the problem is. That's all that the shark really knows. And so maybe it, 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 maybe when it was young, it saw a thing or two, but by the time it's reached its 198th or its 347th birthday, it has no recollection of what light is or what vision is or what sight is. And for me, that's a picture of humanity as a whole. That at some point our world was plunged into darkness and yet we can busily get on with our days and not really conceive or perceive of the reality of the darkness in which we live. The question I want to wrestle with you with is this. What does it mean when Isaiah, John and many other biblical writers speak of the coming of Jesus into the world and his birth and his life for us? When they speak of him as the light of the world, what is it? What change did he bring? What was it that, that dawned with his coming so that he can be described as light in the midst of a bleak and dark world? And I want to show you three facets or aspects to what this light signifies and what it means. The first is this that Jesus is born into the world as light because he personifies goodness. Goodness. Now, you know that in so much of our mythology, and particularly our recent mythology, darkness and evil are deeply associated realities, aren't they? We we would um, not find Darth Vader quite so menacing if George Lucas had decided to dress him in a pastel outfit, right? Pastel blue or pastel green or some other such color. No, no, he's dressed in pure black in order to somehow communicate to you visually the evil that he personifies. And similarly, there's going to be a couple of Lord of the Rings references. I'll give you forewarning right now. But similarly, the Dark Lord Sauron dwelling in Mordor. You don't imagine him in his great tower um, requesting floor-to-ceiling at windows for natural light in order to avoid seasonal affective disorder, do you? The guy is shrouded in smoke and blackness and darkness and all of that in Tolkien's literature as well as in the movies evokes the evil that he encapsulates in that character. Now, the point that you and I have to somehow connect with is this, that this evil does not just exist in mythology, and in the most extreme and and, uh, tragic examples of of humanity that we've seen in history, but that this evil is somehow part of our day-to-day existence. that There is this darkness in us and around us. And I think the older I get, the more that becomes absolutely transparent to me, partly through observing myself, and partly through my observations of the world in which we live. It seems to me that Wherever you cut society, at whatever level you cut it, there is this darkness that seems to pervade all of us. You know, we go right to the very pinnacle to our leaders, and we've just been reading in recent weeks of sex trafficking scandals associated with royalty. Of course, this has always been true of the royal family, that there has been, you know, sometimes living in a position of immense privilege also means that the rules don't apply to you. But nevertheless, we're deeply disappointed, aren't we, by this? And every day, splashed across our papers, the people that we elect to represent us who are meant to be examples and leaders to us are constantly entangled in the sleaze and the greed and the sex scandals and the way in which they establish rules that they themselves do not keep. The list, You know, we could speak endlessly about the The problem of that but it doesn't just exist up there does it it exists everywhere around us in our friendships in our in our work relationships in our romantic relationships it seems to me that part of the reason why we cannot buy into the Hollywood vision of romance is because you and I know that the second you become close and intimate with a person is the when you become disappointed in them and when they become disappointed in you that somehow the darkness of the reality of who we are affects and affects everything we do and touch. And this, as I said, is personal to me and it's personal to you also. There is a sense in which, you know, I I know for a fact that every one of us has secrets we, we don't want to divulge. And there is... There is shame in our search history or in our regrets from the past or in the fantasies that we indulge about the present or the future. And this, the Bible describes, this pervasive reality of evil is what the Bible describes as darkness, the people who walked in darkness. And it's against that backdrop. If you've begun to feel something of the cynical effects of knowing this blackness in this world around us. It's against that backdrop that the Lord Jesus Christ begins to radiate as pure goodness. That's why he's described as light. He was a man who radiated purity and a nobility and a gentleness with the weak and the broken. And also a courage and a righteous anger wherever he saw anything that contravened real justice. And all of this in a a way that seemed effortless to him. One of the great proofs of the way that he embodied this goodness is how he seemed to cut humanity in two. He polarized people across, in two directions. On the one hand, there were those who saw his radiance and his goodness and the light of his goodness and were drawn to him in in an irresistible way. And it typically typically was the broken of society, like moths drawn to a flame. There was something that just deeply attracted them to Jesus. And if you ask any of us here who, who would describe ourselves as Christian, we'll say, that was me. I saw the brokenness in me. I felt the darkness in me. I was drawn to his goodness because I recognized that I needed him in my life. And yet on the other hand, the reality of the goodness of this man and the light that he brought to bear upon us as humans also had a repelling effect on many. And this, is, this was described in John's gospel because he obviously was a witness to this effect of Jesus wherever Jesus went. He described it In this way, let me just quickly find these verses. In John chapter 3, He said that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. What John is describing there is something like what I witnessed as a child. I used to spend countless hours rummaging around in our garden. Um, In Winchester, we had a pond, and we had soil, and we had, it was just, for me, as interested in nature, it was, it was heavenly. I'd have my hands in the pond for hours to, pulling frogs out and newts out and just examining these things. And I would often lift up these massive rocks we had in a kind of feature in the garden. And as you lift it up, you know what happens when you lift a great rock and the soil underneath? Bugs, hundreds of bugs scatter in, instantly that they see the light. There are certain insects drawn to the light and there are others that are repelled by it. And this was exactly, to my mind, the effect of Jesus from the second he was born, actually. You know the stories. You maybe hear them again over Christmas of those who were drawn to him like the shepherds, those who were afraid of him and repelled like King Herod. And that theme continued on throughout his whole life, resulting ultimately in his crucifixion. And those who were so offended by the light of his goodness crucified him and put him to death. The one thing that was not possible was for anyone to remain neutral to him. The light had an effect on everyone. He was born into the world as light because the light was goodness. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Jesus is born into the world as light because his light speaks to us of truth, of the truth and revelation that he came to communicate. Now, it seems to me that if ever there's a day in which we need to dwell on this, it is here right now. We live in a world that is increasingly fractured and torn apart by competing contradictory narratives and truth claims so that we don't know who to believe anymore. We've just lived through two years of, and more of... Um, of unpredictable suffering and, and, and tra- challenge, and a time in which we ought to have united against a single common enemy, which has been a virus, but actually it's, all it's done is brought to the surface our human capacity to fall out with each other about absolutely everything, whether it's you know how dangerous the thing is, how we should deal with it, whether we should be vaccinated, where it came from, what we should wear on our faces, all these kinds of things. It seems our capacity to fall out is constant because we have no idea how to answer the question of what is true. And cast your minds back, friends, this is not a new thing because just before this event took place, I hate to remind you, but we were all wrapped up in Brexit, do you remember? And then it was, you know, we, the, the, the nation was, was cut in two almost exactly down the middle by two competing visions of Britain. One that said, no, Britain is a thing of the past and we need to more and more... F- identify with the global village, and the other which said, no, 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 the nation-state still exists. It has, it's a precious entity that needs to be preserved. I'm not here to adjudicate over which of those is right. You'll be relieved to know. All I'm trying to observe to you is this, this, this reality, that claims and counterclaims constantly divide us as people. And along with that is the disappointing reality that we find dishonesty and a lack of trustworthiness in one another all the time, don't we? You know, if you want to engage in a romantic relationship, the instinctive way these days is to go online, right? You've, you've, you've mingled for a while, nothing's happened, so you go online. And here's the thing, right? You may have, some of you may have experienced this. You don't know for sure whether the person you see in the image is the beauty or the hunk they appear to be, or whether it's really a greasy old man in a basement somewhere, and it, we even have a word for it, it's called catfishing, right, where people pose as one thing and they're not really who they appear to be. The same's true if you try and, I was chatting with a couple of brothers um, who were looking for a flat in London, and look, this is the reality, isn't it? The estate agent tells you that this, is, this place is full of character with access to local amenities. And what that turns out to mean is that the place stinks of smoke, it's full of mold, and there's a public loo nearby. <laughs> and of course this is, this is the dishonesty that we're wrestling with on a day-to-day basis in ordinary life. And I look, you know even, you know, even your, your friends do this to you. You see their smiling pictures show up on your, on your social media feeds, and you know you know they're at home crying over a tub of Pringles watching Netflix, don't you? You know that this is curated just for an audience. And of course, so this dishonesty, this, it pervades every level of our humanity, doesn't it? And it breeds a cynicism in us and it raises the question of how we can know truth. And if this is true about politics and finding flats and other mundane realities that we face on a day-to-day basis, how much more is it true of the greatest questions of life. You see, this isn't just a modern problem. This problem has been a human problem for all of our history that we have had the capacity to disagree and make war over the questions of what is true because we cannot agree over the most fundamental questions like, is there a God? What happens after you die? What is goodness and what is evil? And all these kinds of questions that have immense importance. And it's obviously true to me, though people try and deny this, that we cannot all be right either. People have tried to, to, to make that case, but it's a complete nonsense, isn't it? The atheist and the theist can't both be right. The monotheist and the polytheist can't both be right. The person who believes in animism and the spirits inhabiting everything cannot be right alongside the person who believes in a personal creator God. And it raises this massive problem, this huge conundrum for us in our smallness, in our finitude, in our weakness, in our inability to absorb everything and understand all things, you're just you, you're just, I'm just me, how can we possibly know what is true? How can we see light in all the darkness that's around us? And this, friends, is a long way of trying to explain to you exactly why Jesus came into the world as light. One of the unique and precious claims of the Christian faith is this that God stepped into history so that we didn't have to just believe the word and the testimony of one man against another and one prophet against another about these divine matters, but so that we could see the face of God Himself. In the chapter just read to us in John's Gospel, John said this, he said the word, the way of speaking about Jesus, became flesh, body, blood, bone, flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, which means his radiance, the light of who he is, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what this means is that for the person who who looks at Jesus you can experience the power of his light beginning to dispel doubt and also silence debate because suddenly the darkness of our confusion is dealt with by the unmatched historical reality of this one man born to a mother in the way you and I are born growing up observed, touched, seen, heard, living, dying, rising from the dead, his whole existence emanating the light of who God is and the truth. And the wonderful thing is, I know some of you may be instantly in your head pushing back and thinking, well, yeah, that's if you believe he is God. The wonderful thing is that this is a claim that can be held up to scrutiny. You can go away tonight and look at him for yourself. You can gaze at him and then decide, is he the light of truth or is he just one more voice in the darkness? Jesus is born as light because he's goodness, because he's truth. And let me tell you one last thing about him. Jesus is born into the world as light because he is salvation. Because he is salvation. This this is implicit in the things that Isaiah was saying about the birth of this man before long before he came to be born he said in isaiah chapter 9 that those who dwelt in the land of deep not deep darkness on them has light shone then he says in isaiah chapter 42 it's god speaking about jesus he says i'll give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And one last verse in the book of Isaiah. God says of Jesus, I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Light and salvation go hand in hand with the coming of this, this one man. i remind you, by the way, when Isaiah wrote this, I'll make you as a light for the nations and my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. He was writing as an Israelite to a very obscure, Semitic people living on the borders of the Mediterranean, unknown to anyone except a few people groups that surrounded them and here they're talking about the coming of someone more than 700 years later who would become known to the whole world. Now, we're living almost three millennia after that was written and my mind boggles at the reality that that is now true. That in and of itself is a pregnant thought that you need to go away and wrestle with and chew on and think about. How is that possible? the prediction of that birth and of all that he came to be and to represent that he has now impacted the world. But here's what I want you to understand. Isaiah was saying that Jesus is salvation. What did he mean? What, What do we need to be saved from? And this is where we need to come back to this idea of darkness. In Scripture, darkness speaks of the reality of suffering and of our condition. It speaks of the fears and anxieties that you and I all know. It speaks of the dread of death and of the suffering that precedes it. It speaks of our regular awareness of isolation and loneliness. It speaks of the evil that I've been describing all around us, but also that we see in our own hearts and the shame that accompanies that. It speaks of the despair that we feel in the face of persistent injustice, a world that does not seem to be able to set right, that the minute you set the balance one way, everything seems to break in the opposite direction, and the constant challenge and travail of trying to seek a just world. But the Bible also says all of that is just symptoms. That's not the disease itself. The disease itself, the heart of the issue and the heart of this darkness that we see is the way in which we as humans have become separated from the God who made us. Like the miners deep underground or like Mike Collins on the other side of the moon. We've been separated from the God who is light. And the fruit of that separation is, spills out in all this evil and wickedness and fear and anxiety and everything that we see around. And this is where the hope comes in, why Jesus is described as salvation. Partly, this has to do with the effect and the transforming power that he brought into the world as light upon his entry into the world. Now, one of my favorite, I told you Lord of the Rings was going to feature more than once. One of my favorite illustrations of this is when Frodo encounters on his way towards Mordor, he encounters the queen of elves, Galadria. And the queen gifts to him a small glass phial that contains a kind of supernatural light. And she says to him these words. She says, it will shine still brighter when night is about you. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. And Frodo, much further on in his quest on his journey into Mordor, he finds himself in a dark tunnel through the mountains going into mortal, which is the heart of darkness and evil. And this darkness Tolkien describes with words that for me evoke the reality of our human condition. He describes this darkness like this. He said, here, the air was still, stagnant, heavy, and sound fell dead. They walked as it were in a black vapor wrought a veritable darkness itself that as it was breathed brought blindness not only to the eyes, but to the mind, so that even the memory of colors and forms and of any light faded out of thought. Saying that this darkness seemed to get into Frodo and Samwise as they're traveling through this evil place. And then they encountered this terrible foe, this giant spider bigger than many men called Shelob. And as Shelob is almost silently creeping up on Frodo and ways, and the hairs go up on the back of their neck as they sense the presence of this evil devouring creature. Samwise reminds and prompts Frodo of the gift that Galadriel gave him, of the glass vial. And he, as he pulls it out of his coat, he says, why yes, why had, I, why had I forgotten it? A light when all other lights go out, and now indeed Light alone can help us. As he pulls it out, it emits this radiance and this pure light that begins to repel the spider. And for me, that's a picture of the coming of Jesus into the world. The darkness inside and around us is an oppressive, smothering darkness so that we cannot even remember what light and color is. And then Jesus comes in. And here's... (laughs) Here's a reality you have to wrestle with. The world into which Jesus was born was a world that was a dark and wicked place where the nations surrounding, it was, it was commonplace to know of child sacrifice in ancient times, where the Romans themselves left children on the sides of hills if they were unwanted. Where a third of the empire, that Roman empire into which Jesus was born, were slaves where brutality and oppression and sexual exploitation were the daily experience of the populace. And the history of the last 2,000 years, there has been checkered and marked by progress and then also its opposite. But the history of the last 2,000 years has been of the light of who Jesus is, pushing back that darkness. I'm not here to, to give you a full history lesson or an apology for the for the dark moments even in Christian history. But wherever the light of Jesus is, in truth, in his purity, wherever that has shone, it has begun to change the world for the better. So that most of our ideas of goodness and justice and love and mercy and righteousness, most of our ideas and our conception of these things come from him, whether we recognize it or not. And I know that we in this Western world are doing our hardest to discard or to bury our heritage in this regard. But even in doing so, we're denying the world that made us. That gave us a sense of what right is and what wrong is and what has so far carved out a new world. And a world that is constantly being renewed by the pervasive light of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to banish the darkness in that way, and that's part of what his salvation means. But I think, perhaps even more significantly for you and me as individuals, it means this. That the light of Jesus' salvation is an invitation, just as light guides you in your day-to-day life. Just as you can imagine how beautiful the experience must have been for those Chilean miners when First, they saw the lights of the divers and the rescuers who'd come to to find them. The light of Jesus is a guiding light, and it's a light that draws us back to the God who made us. Jesus came into the world as, he described himself as the way and the truth and the life. The way, meaning that he is exclusively and wonderfully the way that you and I can find our way back to the God who made us. He came into the world not just to be born, and we, we, we marvel at the reality of his birth and of Christmas, but his birth would not mean anything if it were not also wrapped up with the purpose for which he was born, that Christmas also points us to Easter and the reality that he would die 33 years later upon a cross, willfully, intentionally journeying his way towards that death so that he could take upon himself, upon his body, the evil and the darkness of humanity that he would die for our sin. In order to bridge a way, in order to make a path, in order to shine a light back to God. My prayer for you, friends, is this. May you, this Christmas, experience the illumination of the light of Jesus. That you may see his goodness and see the truth of who he is and all that he showed us about God. And most of all, that you will see the salvation that he offers you.